Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping, especially for pastors and teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. Our guest this week is Aubrey Buster. To regular listeners of the show this year, Aubrey's no stranger. I think this is her third, maybe fourth, definitely at least third time to be on the show and all this year because she is a Psalms scholar. And so having her uh, on the Psalms has been great. And uh, I've met her through the show. She was recommended by another regular guest, Amy Peeler, and have just really appreciated her insight and pastoral heart and uh, exegetical depth and friendship. So I really appreciate what she had to say today about our psalm, which is Psalm 146. Psalm 146. As you're listening to the show today, if you find yourself enjoying it, why don't you just pause and even you can even have it keep going if you can do two things at once and just press the share button on your podcast player app of choice. All of the apps have it. Press share and then you can shoot a text or a private message or post on social media just to let other people know about the show and why it's important to you and why you found it helpful and enjoyable. Y'all are our marketing department. So uh, it's all word of mouth kind of show that this is so... We appreciate it when you when you pass it on. Most people find out about the show through a friend. So we'd appreciate it if you if you pass it on this week, if you're enjoying it, especially this week. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways that you can become a patron saint. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Aubrey. All right, so let's hear it. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Let my whole being praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. Don't trust leaders. Don't trust any human beings. There's no saving help with them. Their breath leaves them, then they go back to the ground. On that very same day, their plans die too. The person whose help is the God of Jacob, the person whose hope rests on the Lord their God is truly happy. God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. God, who is faithful forever, who gives justice to people who are oppressed, who gives bread to people who are starving. The Lord, who frees prisoners, the Lord, who makes the blind see, the Lord, who straightens up those who are bent low, the Lord, who loves the righteous, the Lord, who protects immigrants, who helps orphans and widows, but who makes the way of the wicked twist and turn. The Lord will rule forever. Zion, your God will rule from one generation to the next. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let us pray or continue to pray. Father, we ask that the spirit that moved in this psalm and this psalmist and that spirit that moved in the people of God and those incorporated into that people by faith throughout many centuries who've sung and prayed and bore this psalm on their lips and hearts. We ask now that that same spirit would be at work in us that Aubrey and I's conversation would be guided by the Spirit to be more than a display of ingenuity, but truly a listening to the Word 
and offering what we hear. And may the same be true in all the, those who are listening in, separated as we are by time and space, that each one in their own place would be moved by the Spirit to receive the word and to return their own word back to God in praise, in petition, and in their participation in the life of God. We pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Aubrey, what do you see here today? What do you notice? Yes, this this is a rich psalm. The first thing I was struck by is what is commanded to praise the Lord. This is a typical praise psalm, and so we get that command at the beginning, that invitation, you must praise the Lord. But it's the the nephesh. It's often translated as soul, and I intentionally picked a translation that didn't use the word soul, because the nephesh in Hebrew and the soul in English are almost opposite concepts. I've been convinced by Hans Walter Wolf that the nephesh in the Hebrew Bible describes the needy self. The nephesh is that which thirsts when it's parched and hungers when it's empty. The nephesh is associated with the throat when there's a physical image that accompanies it because that's where we breathe in. That's where we take in food. That's also where we praise and breathe out. Whereas the soul, because we're so influenced by this kind of Greco-Roman anthropology, we view the soul falsely sometimes as that which is permanent, that which lives after death, that which is our true essence. And so I I moved by and noticed that Psalm 146 invites our needy selves to praise. That is the part of us that is the most truly human, the most mortal, as, as it will go on to celebrate. And that's what it's invited to praise God. Yeah, it's even hinted at in the very next line, right? Exactly. Let me, let me praise the Lord while I live. While I live, yes. As if to say that the life breath is not intrinsically permanent. I won't just call it sheerly temporary because there is a hope of something permanent, but it's only always in the mode of receiving as a gift. Exactly. Not as an intrinsic property. Exactly. All we have comes from God and can be taken away but also can be given back. That's our hope in the resurrection is yeah, that God will yeah. ultimately give that back. Yes. So let me praise the Lord while I live. Mm-hmm. Let me hymn to my God while I breathe. While I breathe. So yes. there's that link to the throat, you know, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's intentional in the Psalms. Definitely. And then of course this continues with why you can't trust humans. Humans of course give off, the I also liked this translation for using leaders because we don't have princes really anymore. <laughs> At least in my context, we don't have actual princes. Other places there are. But we do have leaders, leaders who give off the sense of permanence and power, who have real effects over our lives, right? Their power is real, but any sense of permanence is false because their breath, the breath they receive from God, leaves them as well. And so that movement from inviting our temporary selves to praise God to recognizing why then we can't trust in humans, this is linked in the progression of the psalm. Yeah, that's that's really, really good. May I ask what version are you using? Are you being shy and it's just yours? And you say, I chose no, no, this because no. it's so great. I actually, well, I, I chose the CEB again, which I was, I was like, I've used that the last two times. I'm going to use something else. But it really captured, as I was reading through the Hebrew, there were a few things that I'm like, oh, I am I really want to capture this. And then the CEB did it. So I, I feel okay. a little fangirlish about, about the well, CEB. I swear it's not what I read, but they did a good job. We speak out of our training. And I mean, 
what our audience may or may not know is that you were trained by one of the principal editors of this translation. Was, so I it's was. okay that you're, yes, yes. This is why I don't just have the same guest on every week. That's right. That's right. So the other translations are good, but this one translates nefesh, not as full. And then we get to the participles later on. I really appreciate. Well, let's jump to that then. Okay. Participles. What verses were you thinking of there? So it begins in verse six. There are a series of participles in Hebrew. What's translated in the CEB as the maker or God who is the Lord who does these things. Okay. And are these participles, in, try to refresh my Hebrew memory. Do participles have a, a tense in Hebrew? So participles are non-finite. They don't That's have That's what I thought. Okay. So they can be, they can be either. Unlike s- Greek where they specify, although tenses and participles are yeah, funky in Greek. I, so I have they're a, not precise, but still. I have a little bit of a trauma response thinking of Greek participles. That's like a sorry, moment. Sorry, sorry. That's a, no, it, it's a great moment. But I remember <laughs> right at the beginning of second semester Greek is participles. And it's great fun once you get into it. All my traumas in Hebrew. Yeah. I, I just had so little, not because of the language. It's just, it's because the one I did second and I was in seminary and intimidated. I wasn't in college where I was the smartest one in the room and could you're, you're not learn alone. my Greek and be all, I don't know Greek. And then I go yeah, to seminary. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you were, you were me at your school. All of you were. And now like, oh, I was so terrified. And exactly. I just couldn't, I couldn't keep Why? up. I could not Why keep up. Our in the Lord. Our yes, Lord. yes. And not in our own abilities. Amen. All Amen. Yes. Thank you for applying verse three to my to my insecurity as a Hebrew student. Because I noticed that with the last text we did, because there was one where it referred to to God. At, this was the one with uh, Bud Bents for our listeners who are regular. I can't remember which song it was, but we just did it. It was uh, 81, 81. There's a reference to God as the the one who brings you out of Egypt. Yes. And, it, and, it, ha- and it, it had no sort of tense sense to it. And it was kind of like, you could put that in the present tense. This is his identity. He is the yes. bringer out of Egypt. Yes. And you get the same pattern here, right? So these are absolutely, absolutely not strictly past tense actions. These are descriptions of the kind of God he is. Am, am I exactly that right? Can, okay. You can think of participles as verbal adjectives. Okay. So they, sometimes the context will determine the tense. Okay. But they do not in and of themselves. And of course, Hebrew has a different system than English does. English is a very tense-based language. But the participles are used repeatedly in psalm hymns to indicate those things that are intrinsic to God's character. This gotcha. is not something that okay. God did. It is something that God does, which is why I liked the way the CEB translates it, God with a colon, the maker of heaven and earth. So this is God and we're tempted in English, and some translations do this. We're tempted to say, oh, this is the God who made heaven and earth, right? We're going back to that moment described in Genesis 1 where God makes something. But that would actually go against the entire psalm theology of creation, which is that, of course, God made. Of course, God made, but that God continually makes. And if God removes God's creative presence from the world for a moment, all would cease to live and be. And so the more daring translation of this participle, either as God, the one who makes heaven and earth, or God, the maker of heaven and earth. That is, for for the grammar nerds, a substantive participle. Yeah, which one did CB go with? I can't remember. They go with the maker. The maker, okay. That is, this is who God is. And Robert Alter goes maker. Yes, yes. He avoids articles as much as possible. Yes, there is is not, in fact, an article here, but God, maker of heaven and earth. This is. I was struck when you read because of the inserting of God. Is it God dash or? God colon. Colon, okay, even better. It was struck me because I, I knew I could tell what 
they were doing yes by sort of keeping this the focus on who we're talking about here and as identity markers so i loved that i was struck by and maybe you have a thought on this choosing to since we're inserting the subject why to choose the english for elohim rather than you know the english for yahweh i mean i assume it's because that's the last word because it says the lord yes. is his god exactly that must be it that must be it the lord their god which God? Oh, okay. In verse five, it says, the person whose help is the God of Jacob. And so this is specifying that there are truly in our lives and in the ancient world, but also today, many, many things that we can put our hope in. In the ancient world, they would have imagined a heaven filled with powerful supernatural beings. We often ascribe a lot of those roles to what we would call today angels and demons, right? Those powers. And you could put your hope in them. You could put your hope in earthly powers. But the psalmist is specifying that the one who is going to be happiest is the one who chooses to place their help in this God. And then you can imagine someone saying, well, who is the God of Jacob? And the psalmist replies and says, well, the God of Jacob is the one who makes heaven and earth, the one who is faithful forever. Whereas other powers, both human and spiritual, exist, but aren't the ones who did these things and are doing these things. Yes, yeah, so you really get, I guess, the next, however you choose to punctuate them. Yeah. Verses six, seven, eight, and nine yeah. are all kind of these attributive or descriptive, right? The first two in the form of participles without a subject. Exactly, exactly. Maybe that's the other reason CEB went with putting the word God there yes. to differentiate because then it's gonna, it will switch to, to the to Lord. Lord in eight and nine because then it might just get repetitive. You might have the four and it might not reflect that there's a shift in approach. Right, right. Because eight and nine are not participles, correct? They or are. are. They, they are still. They are oh, still. Oh, okay. So in eight, we get the Lord participle who makes the blind see, ah. opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord, Adonai. They're almost kind of anticipating that grammatical structure in the previous two verses and just inserting Elohim. Okay, thanks for walking me through that. It's possible we just lost a few listeners and I don't care because that was awesome. We also just had a few who are like, I'm in forever now because I'm actually- Yeah, learning. yeah, exactly, so, exactly. You, know, you can't predict these things. But uh, that, was, that was really, really great. Thanks so much for that. Let's take a quick break and come back and dig in a little deeper. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aubrey Buster, and we're looking at Psalm 146. So there's a question you asked twice now on break. So now let's get it on the record. (laughs) (laughs) Why praise? Why do we praise? Especially why do we praise in the hard times? Yes. So let's explore that theme a little bit, as this is right here in the heart of the the Hillel, this this string of, of hallelujah psalms at the end. Yes, yes. So this will reveal probably just as much about me, perhaps, as about the Psalms. But just to just to dive into what you said in at this moment, Psalm 146 is the first of five pure praise psalms that end the Psalter. And depending on what type of person you are, or perhaps what life experience you're in right now, the hymns are either your favorite or least favorite psalm. I find when I teach Psalms and I teach that there are three major genres of Psalms, right? The hymns that praise God almost purely, 
And by purely, I mean just celebrating who God is. The laments who question those aspects of God's character and then the thanksgivings which celebrate what God has done in a particular moment in your life. I find that me as the teacher and my students have an easier time explaining the value and understanding the value of the laments. Like, isn't it good news that we can bring our pain and suffering to God? And I've had trouble conveying the power and value of the hymn in the Christian life. The hymns can sometimes strike us as naive. So this Psalm says, the Lord who gives justice to people who are oppressed. And at the end of this podcast, and while the people are listening to this podcast, the oppressed will most likely, most of them remain oppressed. Those who are starving, many of them will remain starving, even though this psalm declares that God is the God who gives bread to people who are starving. So my question has always been, what is the good of a hymn? What is the purpose of praising God in terms that for some might feel relevant, but for many don't seem fully realized? And I, I've come to three, this is my hypothesis. This is something that's developing. But for me, a person who I think struggles to pray the hymns more than, than pray the laments, I've come to three kind of realizations. And Psalm 146 has been helpful in this. Uh, the first is that the hymns specify what God we praise. And the God we praise is the God who makes heaven and earth, who is faithful forever, but is also the particular God who is bringing justice to the oppressed. We don't praise a God who leaves the oppressed in their oppression. We do not praise a God who leaves the blind in their blindness. And so it's because we are taught about the God we praise that we can then, and here's the second thing, without the hymns, you couldn't bring your laments to God. If you didn't actually believe that God brings justice to the oppressed, so that's central to God's nature, you probably wouldn't bring your oppression to God. You wouldn't bring your hunger to God. You wouldn't come as one who is bent low to this God. If you don't, did not believe that it was central to God's character, that when you say, God, I'm low, God says, oh no, <laughs> it is not in my nature to leave those who are brought low. One of the beautiful things about this psalm is that it highlights the characteristic reversals that reveal God's presence. In a human order and under human leaders, it's not the oppressed who experience justice. It's those who are, who are already in power right? We, we know this. I don't need to point to particular political events to say those who are high up and in power achieve justice and those who are low and oppressed are in fact often more abused by the justice system. This is how things work when humans are in charge. When God is in charge, we see these reversals. It's a narrative technique in Hebrew that when something unexpected happens, you're like, God, <laughs> is that you? A poor person has received justice. This must be God. And so those characteristic reversals are that which is celebrated. So the, the hymns specify what kind we praise and encourage us to bring our lament. And the final thing that I'm leaning into right now in, in my studies that hymns orient our hope and desire. We as humans are designed to place our hope in things that we think will work. We orient our desires towards the things that we think will make us happy. And so we hope in money, fame, beauty remaining youthful. We were talking before we began recording this podcast about bodies breaking down and disappointing us. And so there's a massive industry that's designed to try to help you put your hope in a cream or a pill <laughs> or something that will restore your youthfulness. And one of the beautiful things about the hymns and about a lot of the 
the Hebrew poetic literature is that it trains our desires towards that which we should hope in. This has been pointed out to me by my friend, former fellow PhD student at Emory, Anne Stewart, who's written a beautiful book called uh, Poetic Ethics, where she talks about the way in which Hebrew poetry, and I would include the hymns in this, train our desires towards the right thing. And so this vision of a God who is accomplishing all the things that we wish God would accomplish more consistently, more often, is a way to, to shape our desire towards not only God, but towards saying, yeah, I do want the blind to see. I do want the oppressed to receive justice and the starving to achieve bread. And it, it causes us to recognize the way in which our desires are often malformed, that we place our hope in not becoming blind in the first place, or our own abilities, or the abilities of those who are in power. And so this constructs a kind of almost utopian vision of the universe that we are designed to hope for and then lament when it doesn't come to pass. I mean, for starters, that was beautiful. And I want to summarize it for our listeners. So we were joking on the break about maybe during the participles, people were speeding up. Yeah, this, yeah exactly. This was, worth, this was worth slowing down for. This is worth the participles, right? The Hebrew grammar pays off, I promise. Every yeah. Time. So I'm going to summarize those three points and just make sure I heard them right. So the hymns specify who the God is whom we praise. Without the hymns, we couldn't bring our laments because those are the beliefs, the basis of which the laments work, the nearest reversal there. And third, that hymns orient, perhaps reorient (laughs) our hope and desire, right? Yes, yes. We're always aiming towards something in life and it's often the wrong thing. Yeah, I know I can speak to both two and three, I mean, you know, there was a major event of suffering near to my life this very week that we're recording. And there happened to be one morning at, because I pray the Psalms every day with some friends, and there was a lament Psalm, and it even turned a little into imprecation. I don't know how yes, to pronounce yeah. that. Yeah. Is that right? Imp- or am I adding a syllable? Imprecation, yes. Imprecation. Yeah. Oh, I'm adding a syllable. Huh. Um, imprecation. That's easier to say. And I mean, you would think that that's exactly what I would need right then. But I mean, it, it didn't actually resonate. That may, there may be others in this circle who, who that's what they need. So I'm, I'm not objecting to that. But it was actually striking that actually I really, I desired or I wanted to want to praise. You know, I didn't want to. I didn't like get up that morning saying, I can't wait to praise. Yay. It wasn't that. It was more, I was spent. I didn't have the energy to lament. <laughs> I wanted to just be reminded who God is. Yes. Because it wasn't my suffering directly, you know, it was one or two steps removed, you know, the sufferings of others. Okay. It's important to lament that, but like, it's one thing for me to rush to hope for myself, yeah, you know, and to learn how to to sit with it and learn how to do that when I'm listening to them. I'm in total lament phase, but like Mm. having done that, I actually was like, I want to have hope for them. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to push hope on them. They, they, They can find hope when they're ready, but again, I don't know if I was... The desire, there was an, a desire to desire something, yeah, something, yeah, something yeah. other, something greater, some kind of restoration and recompense and, and resurrection. You Absolutely. Know? The grief in some sense is natural. You didn't need a psalm to tell you exactly. that you were experiencing grief. You needed a psalm to give you a message outside of yourself. Yeah, it's kind of become a little popular to kind of praise the laments like, hey, we need to learn how to do this. And that's fine. I think that's been a good correction to a kind of happy clappy kind of Christianity. But I sometimes worry it's like, yeah, if you really, 
when you need lament, you didn't need someone to scold you into how important it was. Yeah. Like you kind of know how to do that. <laughs> Maybe you need permission. Maybe you need to learn to have permission to do so and words for it. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting point, actually, that we talk a lot about how the Psalms of Lament are for those who are grieving and the Psalms and how it's important to recognize what places other people might be in. I but think it can be totally right flipped. Now, yeah. Yes. What you're saying right now suggests to me that the Psalms might be designed and the Christian prayer life in general might be designed to give us words that aren't in our native tongue at the moment. Oh, that's so good. And to think of the Psalter as the prayer book of the Bible rather than as my personal prayer book, although it's also that. It's not, how do I go find the Psalm that fits how I feel right now? That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to also pray through the Psalter in some kind of methodical way, whatever that is. I'm not a fundamentalist about one particular system. I have my influences and they show, but... When my life's going good, the lament reminds me of the injustice in the world that's actually, because guess what? I'm getting the benefits of oppression, even if I'm not actively oppressing. I need to be reminded of the oppressed and the laments do that. Although the praises also do. The praises also do because that. They yes. don't, because they don't just talk about how great I'm feeling, but they remind me who God is. That's your first point, which is at least for me, what I need to hear this week is what kind of God it is that I worship. That's right. Precisely because when I'm looking around, this isn't what I'm seeing. That's right. Why you called it a utopian vision. <laughs> exactly. Well, God, God who is faithful forever. That's why it matters that they're participles, That's not as right. past tense facts, which, right. which fits in a Thanksgiving Psalm, a specific act of relief from oppression is being given thanks for. Okay. That's past tense. Exactly. But in a praise, it kind of needs to be a participle because it's about the character of God, even if I can't see the evidence of that in my present or recent past. And it gives you permission to be dissatisfied because it isn't as though, <laughs> well, it does. It I does. know. It's already laughed. It just it was a perfect phrase. Yeah. yeah. That even the hymns give permission for dissatisfaction, which again, sounds counterintuitive. Exactly. Sounds like praise means you have to be all chipper. Right. Right. But you don't have to say, oh, just be grateful for what you had. Right. This is mm. a common, you know, like at least, at least you had this time or this moment. It's like, no, God is faithful forever and is creating I have permission to rail against this present reality. Yeah. Even when I'm praising, that's good. Even when I'm praising. Yeah. Yeah. This is so good. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. I can already see where it might be going. Yeah. 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 we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aubrey Buster, and we're looking at Psalm 146, a hymn of praise. So let's explore some sermon starters. Uh, We were talking on the break and Aubrey encouraged me to share this again. So I just made this your fault if people don't like it. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's just fine. I'll, I'll I'll take the credit and the blame. Yeah. It was just a comment I made to her that in what she was sharing, the wisdom about these three reasons for why we praise in the middle segment, she opened with this line, maybe this says more about me than it does about the psalm. And I told her on the break that I didn't want to interrupt her, but I had the thought when she said that, that, well, that's a sign of good psalm exegesis, right? So as regular listeners are certainly tired of hearing me say, but I will never tire of saying it, the Bible is not a book, it's a library. And so the many books of the Bible and their many genres are inspired for different reasons and with different ends in mind and with different roles for the reader to play. I mean, there are good standard rules of exegesis that apply across the board. And yet, I mean, whereas in some cases, I think especially of like the law and the prophets, 
reading yourself into it too quickly is a strategy of avoidance. It, you know, it's to change it and make it, make it easier to apply and not let it starkly call you out. But in the case of the Psalms and perhaps also the Gospels, but that's a discussion for next year when we switch back and do Gospels next year. In the case of the Psalms, being too objective and keeping yourself out of the conversation is actually itself a strategy of avoidance. And the line between, you know, I think what, what, did, what, what did we come up with? It was all, all exegesis should be for the heart, to the heart. But Psalm exegesis has to be from the heart. Yes. It's gotta be, you got to be in it. You got you to gotta see yourself in it. That's right. And they're written for that. That's not, that's not something you're adding on. That's not even application. That's already. That's right. Not even interpretation. I would say that's already exegesis. That's already reading the text yeah. to see yourself in it. You don't come in at a later stage with the Psalms. Yes. Yeah. So that was an endorsement of how to preach the Psalms, man. You, in, until you have that moment, you know, of encounter with what's happening here, don't rush to your sermon ideas. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's just ideas then. So speaking of sermon ideas, where would you go with this? What would be your focus Yeah. Uh, if you were yeah. preaching on this Psalm or what advice would you have for someone who might be preaching on a Psalm like this? And it's interesting. I've, I've often heard it's kind of become a cliche complaint that it's difficult to preach the Psalms. As I was reading this one, though, and even in the development of our conversation, this is in some ways a psalm designed to be preached, right? It, it begins with a command, right? A command that both implicates the preacher, as, as your point is, but also implicates the congregation. So you've begun with, with that exhortation. Then there is a warning, right? A warning away from maybe the most basic human tendency that there is to trust in things that are present in a human way. There's an opportunity here, I think, to customize this to the congregation or even on on a pastoral level to be vulnerable about the things that you in particular, if you are implicating yourself in this psalm, you in particular tend to to trust trust in. I've had uh, several friends who have, I don't know if this is going around in your circles, they have on their phone a set reminder a certain number of times a day it's an app that reminds you that you're going to die multiple times a day. And they use this as a spiritual. Yeah, I've heard about this. I don't have yes. this. Yet, but <laughs> I, I do practice. I mean, it's, it's on my, uh, I have a list of things that I need to do at least once a day and five things. And one of them is, uh, is memory morty, right? <laughs> remember, right? Remember your mortality or as the desert fathers called it, remember your exodus. Oh, that's beautiful. Which is I very, know that. Which is very fitting when you live in the desert. Cause they're also saying, remember how you, you yes. left. Yes. You, you already died in some sense in your baptism or in your vows and choosing to, especially because some of these people were literally leaving Egypt and going yes. into Sinai. So Yeah, right. But it's primarily your final exodus. Anyway, sorry to add that in, but remember, remember your exodus. That's a great addition. And for those of us who our help is the God of Jacob, that mortality isn't bad news, right? It is, it is an exodus. That's a beautiful reminder. And then it ends in, in encouragement. Right. So we get it's starting in verse five, right? So it's like yes, command yes. is like one and two invitation because it's a very positive command. Exactly. And then three and four was the warning. I think you yes. called it, right? Yes. And then would you say the rest five to 10 is the encouragement or would, would you break it down a little? It depends. So if the okay. Psalms, if the Psalms are saying, this is the way the world truly is, it will be an encouragement to some and a reorientation for others. Because it could be a way in which we have to correct what our desire and our hope is in. 
if we're viewing the world falsely and most of us are, I will say most to leave room for the few, <laughs> few special saints <laughs> who have, who have a, a clearer view of heaven than the rest of us, we are probably seeing the world incorrectly. And so the question in this is, is the God who you are worshiping and praising the God of the psalm? And if not, watch out. <laughs> if, if not, watch out. You are not the person who is truly happy. In verse five, your hope isn't something that will fail you. Yeah. So a blessing maybe would be the word, which implies, you know, when it says blessed are those who mourn, it says those who are causing them to mourn are That's right. under the curse unless they join in solidarity with them. It's implied. Blessings imply curses. <laughs> Yeah. So just reiterating what I'm hearing. So this is basically an outline of sermon, which, you know, Psalms don't always work out that way because sometimes they, they move in a very, not in reality, but they can feel a little stream of consciousness sometimes in the way that they kind of flip back and forth between themes, you know? Yes. And um, there's usually a structure to them, but it sometimes takes a little more time to dig that out. This one's just presents itself so clearly. I'm hearing a, a command or invitation in verse one to two, the warning in verse three to four. And then orientation or reorientation, depending on depending on where you're oriented. <laughs> well, in my notes, I put orientation, but with like a little parentheses on the front, R-E, you know, exactly. so reorientation, five to 10. Yeah. So can I out you in terms of your Myers-Briggs? Uh, okay, so yeah. on the break, we both discovered we, we were I- INTJs, although she's an INTJH, yeah. an INTJG, although of course- Greek in Greek is spelled with an H. So actually, they both. Oh, there you go. Uh, (laughs) But uh, anywho. And the G and H are for the languages that we love. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't explain that. Sorry. But I I do Hebrew. (laughs) And that tells something something really deep about about our essential Yeah. But I don't know. Why did I bring that up? Oh, as an INTJ, I found for me, maybe it has nothing to do with INTJ, but you tell me. You just totally did it. But I tend to write a sermons by designing the outline. And then I have to reverse engineer. Oh, what's the main point? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so like some preachers like have the big idea. Yeah. They develop the outline around that. I often, it's not that I don't have a central idea. It's just that I can't articulate it until I've kind of worked it out. Yes. So does that resonate with you or not as a oh, preacher? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, absolutely. That- and it's the way that my spiritual life is outlined too. Like it's very, okay. And this is my fault. I need to understand things before I can speak yeah. them or praise them. And, and it, even understand is right. That's yeah. the right word, but there's even different modes of understanding. That's right. There's a kind of understanding that thinks understanding comes by way of breaking things down. Yes. Right. Yes. Into their parts. And that's okay. It's okay to know who you are. And then you just pause and say, okay, let's put this back together now. So what, what would be the, the theme or the thesis or the hook or the, you know, or the function, there's different ways of putting it in homiletics, but how would you, how would you, and we can workshop it together, but what do you think this sermon's trying to do? What is the, what is the heart of it? In some sense, in some sense, I think the answer might be overly simple. It is to get them to praise the Lord. There you go. That's the function. Praise. (laughs) Why don't praise someone other than the Lord? Verses three and four. Who is the Lord? Verses five to 10. Why praise the Lord? Mm, and that's, mm-hmm. that is the invitation. I forget whose phrase this is, but it is to go back into the historical situation in which the Psalter was compiled. The book of Psalms ended with a command to praise the Lord in a situation in which it was tempting to not praise the Lord. 
So the Psalter was compiled when Israel was ruled by foreign empires who worshipped foreign deities in a period of time in which God was not acting regularly in an obvious way for God's people. And so this psalm, to some extent, is asking you to praise the Lord in a counter-real situation where these things in the psalm do not necessarily seem obvious. And so it is constructing a case for why you should praise the Lord. Is that why the Psalter is referred to as the, the Teliot? Yes, yes, Tahilot, Tahalim, praises, yes. Praises. Yes. Exactly. It's interesting that the name of the Psalter is named after praise, though that is not the exclusive content of the Psalter. It is the framing of the whole, both by title and by structure. It's where it ends. Exactly. And it pops in throughout, you know. Exactly. So you walk, as you walk the journey of the Psalter, it moves from almost entirely lament to mostly lament. Most of the Psalms are lament. And at the end, it is just pure praise. But what is so remarkable is you would kind of expect that praise psalms were written when Israel was doing well, when they were in power, when they were, when it was really obvious that their God was the one who was of the gods. Evidence suggests that these are the latest ones, right? The opposite, or at least they were chosen as the final end of the Psalter in a period of time in which that wasn't an obvious movement to me. I don't want to make a mountain out of molehill with this, and I know this has become passe, but in terms of the use of the divine names... Yes. In the in this final section, you get this back and forth, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, that you don't find, you know, it's heavily Lord in book one, heavily God in book two. I know that's been discredited as a kind of er explanation of everything in the Bible. Just because it's important, what it is important for has been misconstrued doesn't mean it's right. not important. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. So at least in its final canonical form, this is the the end point, the culmination And that canonical form came to existence in a time when God seemed to be the least active. Exactly. And in a time when most of the rest of the canon, or at least the first two parts, the Law and the Prophets, were already up and running, right? As texts that were being experienced where God's like running around doing stuff all the time, showing up and talking and blowing things up and yeah, acting, right? Right, right. Uh, Acting as the God who's described in these these four four or five verses here. That no longer reflects a sort of empirical experience. We could still experience God this way, but maybe not as just sort of empirical facts read right in front of your face the way it seems when you read 1 Samuel or Numbers. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. And, And related to this, the reason I think if you were summing up why to praise God, it would be in that verse 10, the Lord will rule or reign forever. Why do you praise the Lord? Because the Lord is king and not just king, but the righteous king. All of these things that are described are things that kings in the ancient Near East would have claimed to do, rarely Ah, did, but would have claimed to do. And so when it says the Lord who frees prisoners, who makes the blind see, who straightens up those who are bent low, these are claims of a righteous ruler. Hmm. So the opening moment says, let me praise the Lord while I live. Yeah. And then the end is hallelujah and praise the Lord as long as he reigns, which is forever. Forever. Right. That's right. Unlike these temporary princes and their claims to take care of widows and and the hungry. And unlike these princes who claim and who seem to actually have ultimate rule, to actually have ultimate control over this. And they won't. They won't. 
I think this connects really clearly to the hymn in Colossians 1, which celebrates Christ as the righteous king, to Christ's reading of Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, right? These moments where Christ claims to be the one who is reigning, and yet we're still waiting. We're still waiting for the world to be fully subsumed to the rule of Christ and then to the rule of God. Yeah, that's a really nice connection for for all our listeners who are like, I really want to make a little New Testament connection. That'd that's be right. a perfect one. For those who are like, I don't want to do that, then they don't need it. But yeah. And it's Old Testament, Old Testament professor endorsed, right? A connection. <laughs> <to> the- <laughs> OT professor endorsed. <laughs> we we do read we do read that section of the Bible on occasion. <laughs> our devotions and things like that. I, I mean <laughs> you, earlier when there was earlier when you said, nah, you know, we Nowadays, we might attribute this to like angels and demons. I was like, yeah, during the New Testament, they started doing yeah. that. Um, <laughs> that development started yeah. in the latter part of the modern canon. Period. Yes. The modern period yes. for you includes the New Testament, includes, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I am reading in Daniel, where angels and demons show up quite a bit. But There you go. Um, but yes, exactly. That newfangled, those newfangled ideas. Yeah, those new ideas, like Daniel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Resurrection and all that crazy stuff. <laughs> Busted. All right. <laughs> Sorry to end on that. That's probably not the most, that's probably not the most edifying place to end our dear listeners, but uh, hopefully it's enjoyable. So thanks so much for being here, Aubrey. I always love exegeting scripture with you. I've only only exegeted Psalms with you so far, but who knows, maybe someday we'll do something else. But thanks to you, all our listeners. We appreciate you so much for uh, tuning into the show and we'd appreciate it if you get the word out about the show. Thanks to Todd and Eric and Tom for all they've done to get this show up and running, especially Todd, who does the editorial work every week in and out. Can't imagine doing this show without you, bud. And thanks to our supporters of the show. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see how you can become a patron saint. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.